It's good to be here once again. Um, we are back at the Three Angels Seventh-day Adventist Church in Newington, Connecticut. Um, once again, filming in an empty church um, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to roll on um, and we are under stay-at-home orders and social distancing. Um, at this time, we are seeing the curve flatten in most parts of the country and even in other parts of the world. Um, and so, you know, we are at the point where we're hoping to begin to see uh, things be opened back up again. But for now, the churches are still closed. And so we have a message tonight um, that will incorporate some things about, about coronavirus again, as we've been doing in this series, um, but also some prophetic elements um, that we'll revisit, um, as well as um, add some new things to it. Our message this week is entitled, Don't Cry for Jesus. Don't Cry for Jesus, a warning to the last generation. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. I just ask now, Lord, that you make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go to the book of Luke, the 23rd chapter, Luke chapter 23. We jump in at the story of the crucifixion. Some call it the passion of the Christ. Um, and there are some interesting little tidbits that we'll go through here um, and make some of them relevant to, to current events as well. Luke 23 and verse 13 says, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, having found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Pilate is making his case to the Jewish leadership that Jesus does not deserve to die. In fact, he three times makes this case uh, that Jesus is innocent. And I think you have to realize that the, one of the reasons this is so important is because the entire universe is watching. Demons even are in the audience as this is happening. And yet a pagan king says, this man isn't guilty of anything. In fact, when he sends him to Herod, he's supposed to be a representative of the more Jewish side of the society. He finds nothing wrong with him. And this combined um, analysis of Christ and this verdict of his innocence is what allows him to be viewed by the entire universe. It's as if the two of them stamp or confirm the stamp that Christ was the perfect lamb, which is necessary to be uh, sacrificed at the Passover. So literally, as they're going into the Passover week, there's an, a, an inspection that happens. And out of it, Pilate says, this man is without fault. He is perfect. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 16, it says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity, he must release one to them at the feast. And so in order to placate the leadership, 
Pilate says, listen, what we'll do is we'll just punish him a little bit. Let me beat him up. We'll humble him. We'll send him back out. Maybe he'll shut up all of his preaching and, and all of his healing, and you guys won't have to worry about this guy so much anymore. And, and remember that Pilate's job, his primary function, was to keep the peace. The Jewish people were quite rebellious. And so it was his job to keep the rebellions at bay. And so what he did was he, he, he would offer over a, a prisoner as a, as a, as kind of a token, uh, to the Jews to say, listen, let, let's not have a revolution. Here's someone who, you know, came against Rome and we're going to send him back and, 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 and you guys can have him back. Just, just don't do any revolutions. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, look, the stuff you're accusing him of, you're accusing him of trying to say he's God or that he's higher than Caesar or Pilate says, I, I don't see any of that in this guy. But when he says, listen, I'll beat him up, I'll chastise him, I'll, I'll abuse him and release him. Verse 18 of Luke 23 says, and the Jews, they cried out all at once saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Barabbas's name, Barabbas, means the son of the father. His first name, many scholars believe, was Joshua or Yahshua. He literally had the same name, first same name as Jesus, and his last name was son of the father. So he was a type, he was a, 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 a substitute in a sense of, of, of someone who the Jews could look up to as a Messiah, but he did not have the pure character that Christ had. Back to verse 19, Luke describes him further. He says, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. This man was a rebel rouser. He was a murderer. Elsewhere, we are told that he was a thief. He was a true common criminal. I want you to get this. In fact, what they put in front of Pilate in Barabbas, or what Pilate put in front of the Jews in Barabbas and Christ was literally... Uh, the polar opposites. Here, an unspotted, unblemished lamb in character, being, and spirit in Jesus Christ is compared to one who has been completely tarnished. One, Jesus, is trying to build the kingdom for all eternity and, and, and ruin the kingdom of sin and, and eternal uh, universal revolution, while Barabbas is trying to save Israel now and simply overthrow the Romans. And he will do it by any means necessary. Christ would not win his case by any means necessary. He took on the flesh of a child. He, he, he was uh, mocked and abused. Uh, he could have called 10,000 angels, yet he would not use any approach to win. Instead, Jesus suffered rather than strike back. But they in verse 8 all cry out, give us Barabbas. Verse 20, Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And in verse 22 of Luke 23, and he said unto them the third time, why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Now, what I want you to get is that Pilate is pleading and agonizing with them. Leave Jesus alone. I, I, don't worry, I'll punish him. I'll beat him up. And then we're going to let him go. He, he doesn't deserve to die. Pilate did not want to do this because his wife, troubled in a dream, had come to, G, to Pilate and told him not to do anything ill to Jesus. 
But verse 23 says, the cries to crucify him rise only higher. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that, the, that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. I want you to get that one of the things the spirit of prophecy tells us in the book, The Desire of Ages, is that when the crowd is there trying to um, get Jesus to be crucified, it isn't just the voices of men or of the Sanhedrin or of the Pharisees or of the mob. It is the voices of demons. Satan himself is in the crowd in human flesh, walking among them and the demons in human flesh. And that's why I believe it says in verse 23, and they were instant with loud voices. Now it became a supernatural cry that Pilate could not control. And they began to cry, crucify him. Just the weekend before, they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now they cry, crucify him. Verse 24, and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. It should be as they required. Verse 25, and he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate releases Barabbas. And I want you to get that the sinner is released so that the innocent can be taken. In many ways, you and I are Barabbas. We are the ones who have created rebellion against uh, God, we have we have committed great sin, and we are worthy not only of prison, but because the wages of sin is death, we are worthy of death as well. But Christ is our substitute; He is taken when we should have been taken. The Bible says something profound in the end of verse twenty-five. It says, "But He delivered Jesus to their will." Something will always go wrong in your life when Christ is delivered to your will rather than your will being delivered to Christ. When your will is not put into submission to Jesus, instead you try and make your Jesus submit to what you want to do. That's how sometimes the church gets full of people who are living any way they want but claim to love Jesus. He has been submitted to their will. Verse 6 of Luke 20, Luke verse, uh, sorry, 26 of Luke 23 says, and as they laid him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him, they laid the cross that it, he might bear it after Jesus. So Simon of Cyrene of Northern Africa, what is modern day Libya, he is there. An African is there and uh, probably an African Jew relocated under the Greeks to that area um, comes along. And, and what the spirit of prophecy tells us is that Simon just shows a bit of concern. He just shows the slightest bit of, 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 of worry for Jesus. And, and when he does that, the Romans grab him. Now the Bible says he's compelled to take the cross because I don't believe, it, I don't believe the two, two things are juxtaposed. I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and. I think Simon was sought and in horror looked at the condition of Christ. Um, but I, at the same time, I'm not sure he wanted to pick up a bloody cross from a man who was about to be crucified. And so they compelled him, but he was chosen because when they looked on the face of Simon, they could see that Simon was concerned for Jesus. At my alma mater, Oakwood University, 
Um, we have uh, this statue here of Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus up and helping with the cross. And we, uh, as students and alumni of that school, we take it upon ourselves to believe that it is our job, it is our role to assist in the work of Christ and to lift up the cross by any means necessary. Luke 23 and verse 27 says, and there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Now we get to the part of the story we're going to kind of uh, really um, expand upon. The Bible says that there was a company of people, but then it really points out that there were women who followed and the women were crying and they were worried about what was happening to Jesus. In verse 28, it says, but Jesus turning unto them said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus says, don't cry for me. That's what a certain title of this sermon is. Don't cry for Jesus. Jesus says, listen, don't cry for me. Uh, there's some other reasons you ought to be crying, but I'm not one of them. Jesus turns to them and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. We are told, and we'll see in the spirit of prophecy, these women weren't concerned with Jesus. They weren't crying for him as one sent by God. They were crying because they just saw that what was being done to him was so terrible. He may have even healed some of their children. He, they may have even seen him work some of his miracles. They said, but weep for yourselves. And for your children, as this coronavirus pandemic has continued to explode and, and, and we are you know, seeing all of the deaths and all of the panic and fear, I want to submit to you, I don't believe that this thing is a punishment. I've said this in, in the series. I mean, it, I think it's a warning. I think the spirit of God is being withdrawn from the earth. And so more and more of these things are going to happen because Lucifer, Satan himself, will have more power to do these things. I want you to get, I want you to understand that as these things begin to happen, Jesus is turning to you. He's turning to me and he's saying, listen, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because Jesus pivots here and he begins to be, uh, move them back to some of the things he said in Matthew 24. But let's look at what the book, The Desire of Ages says about this. He, she, uh, Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 742, she says, not a few women are in the crowd that follow the uncondemned to his cruel death. Their attention is fixed upon Jesus. Some of them have seen him before. Some have carried to him their sick and suffering ones. Some have themselves been healed. The stories of the scenes that have taken place is related. They wonder at the hatred of the crowd toward him for whom their own hearts are melting and ready to break. And with notwithstanding the action of the maddened throng and the angry words of the priests and rulers, these women give expression to their sympathy. As Jesus falls fainting beneath the cross, they break forth into mourning, mournful wailing. As they see him, they begin to cry, as the scripture says. This was the only thing that attracted Christ's attention in all of the suffering Jesus is going through. Remember by now he's been beaten He's bleeding. He's wearing a crown of thorns. He's been punished. He's weakened. He's been humiliated. And yet in all of that, when he hears the women crying, he stops. I want you to get this. He's not concerned for his own condition. He's concerned for their tears. Although full of suffering, while bearing the sins of the world, he was not indifferent to the expression of grief. 
He looked upon these women with tender compassion. They were not believers in him. He knew that they were not lamenting him as one sent from God, but were moved by feelings of human pity. He did not despise their sympathy, but it awakened in his heart a deeper sympathy for them. The spirit of prophecy tells us he was not indifferent to their expressions of grief. Somebody right now is suffering. This coronavirus has created a ripple effect so that now people are losing their jobs. People don't know how they're going to pay their rent. They don't know how they're going to buy food. Um, This thing has gone on so long that it has erased all of the gains of employment the United States has seen since the housing crisis of 2007, 2008. We are now at 10% unemployment, unheard of in the United States. Um, there's a panic beginning to brew because we don't know where and how we're going to get help. Uh, the government is setting out checks, but a $1,200 check is only going to buy food for a few weeks. No one can live on it long term. And there's no definitive plan in place as to how we get out of this. And somebody's at home tonight because besides the coronavirus, uh, uh, you know, people are still losing their children to murder and suicide. Uh, marriages are still falling apart. There are some alone tonight grieving, not because uh, they've done anything wrong, but because the weight of the of what is going on inside the coronavirus pandemic and outside of it has them in grief. I want you to know that if Jesus stopped as he was carrying the cross, bloodied and beaten, Hungry as he had not eaten since the Last Supper, as he was emaciated and weakened, if he had the time then to stop and see the pain and the grief of these women, I want to tell you tonight, he'll stop tonight to pay attention to your grief. He will pay attention to your tears. Tonight, you are not alone. If Jesus, at his lowest point, when he was suffering the most, had time to stop, to pay attention to the tears of these women, I want to challenge you tonight. He will stop what he's doing to pay attention to your situation. In fact, the spirit of prophecy says that he didn't despise their sympathy, but it awakened in his heart a deeper sympathy for them. And then he gives the warning. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. From the scene before him, Christ looked forward to the time of Jerusalem's destruction. In that terrible scene, many of those who were now weeping for him were to perish with their children. As Jesus is there, his prophetic abilities kick in. And he looks at these women and he can see that as terrible as his situation is, they are going to suffer something terrible in 40 years. Galus would eventually, the Roman general would eventually surround the city. He would pull back. Titus would be sent and he would pull back. And if you didn't understand the warnings that Christ gave in Matthew 24, as the Christians did, you wouldn't know when it was time to run out of the city and you would stay. But what what, what happened was some of these women who are weeping, who despite all Christ had done for them in healing them and healing some of their children and the miracles they saw, if in, in all of that and seeing his suffering, if they weren't converted to follow him as Christ the Messiah. He knew that the suffering they were going to have was going to be terrible. So Christ had sympathy for them more than they could have sympathy for him. 
Luke 23 and verse 29, he expounds. Jesus says, for behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. He says, listen, it's going to be so bad when the Romans destroyed his city. Jesus says the women or the people who had no children to be tortured and slaughtered in the city are going to be the ones who are happiest because they will be able to die without seeing the pain of watching their children die. But then Jesus does something else in Luke 23 and verse 30. He switches from the scenes of the destruction of Jerusalem to the scenes of the destruction that will come at the end of the world. And he says here in verse 30, then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He gives the warning that the time is coming when people are not going to be able to stand. Let me show you. We've been talking about Matthew 24. Let's jump back there for a second. It says here, and woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. In Matthew 24, just like in Luke 23, he begins to, to, to prophesy between the end of Jerusalem, toggling back and forth to the end of the world because the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem stands as a type for what would happen at the end of the world. The Christians would be able to get away uh, out of Jerusalem just as the believer will escape uh, the final destruction of this world. And when the legions finally approached in, this, in 70 AD, 40 years after this time when Jesus is talking to these women, it would be a massacre. They would get inside the city's triple walls. And in this slide, you can see what it looks like. This is one artist's rendition of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. You can see as, they, as they, the Romans walk off with the, the prized possessions and there's murder and slaughter everywhere. The Romans were so upset. They came back with, with vengeance because the Jews kept having re revolution after revolution. They chose revolution when they chose, chose Barabbas and revolution is all they got. And they won many a battle thinking that God was on their side. But all it really did was infuriate the Roman powers. And remember Rome in the book of Daniel is, is represented, uh, Daniel chapter two, as the legs of iron. Legs are your strongest muscles. Iron, the strongest metal. Rome would crush and they did. They came back and crush Jerusalem. And to this day, no temple has ever been rebuilt. Matthew 24 and verse 21 also pivots to the end of the world. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be Shortened. Jesus is warning us in the last generation. He's warning us that a great tribulation is about to come upon the earth. And if you're not prepared for what's about to come on the earth, you're going to be in trouble. That's what Christ is telling us. He says, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days should be shortened. The time will be shortened in order for the elect to not suffer through the end times. The question then is, are such times coming? We've been going over this. As this pandemic has, has rolled on, one of the things that has been very um, um, evident is that by having everybody stay home and not going out, they've watched as the pollution goes down. I saw one, one um, article where in India for the first time in like three decades, they can see the Himalayan mountains because the air pollution has gone down because of 
everybody staying at home. The earth, some say, is healing itself with this virus and allowing us to have to hide so that the earth can heal. And, and so there's a cry, the challenge of Pope Francis, a Sabbath for the earth and the poor, that we should stop what we're doing uh, once a week on Sundays and, uh, and allow the earth to heal every week, um, that we should take this and perpetually do it. A new Sabbath, this other article says, celebration of Sunday Eucharist is a sign of the new and everlasting covenant for Christians. And again, they make the case, you got to go down and read some of these articles, the case that in fact, we need to rest on Sunday. It is an imperative. And because of the ecumenical movement, the Lutherans and, and the Calvinists and everyone is folded back up under the, the uh, under Rome. Even when you look at some of the leadership in Islam and and Buddha, Buddhism, all of a sudden now you're looking as as everyone is beginning to jail with Rome. The barriers are being broken down. The, the the Vatican has announced that in fact the Protestant Reformation is over because they've grasped back hands with the Lutherans, just as is predicted in the Great Controversy. So what's happening? They will begin now to make an argument that neither the, the people on the left of the political spectrum nor the right will be able to counter. Because there are two arguments, one on the left to save the environment, one on the right to save the family and to honor and, and return God to society. And when you look at it, both sides will agree that Sunday sacredness is a good idea. And in the New Boston Post, you can look this up. This is an article that, um, that was recently uh, published and it says at least one societal change resulting from the quarantine could do wonders to reinvigorate our national sense of family, faith, and community. Let's give serious thought to reinstating at least some of the time-honored Sunday closure laws, sort of a one-day-per-week modified stay-at-home request. Such action would uh, rededicate our society to a regular day of rest, family meals, civic associations, and religious observance. This is from Boston, Massachusetts, about two hours from where I live. And they are putting out articles now saying, hey, it's time. This shows us it's time. And just as Jesus says in Matthew 24 and in Luke 23, the time is going to come, a great time of trouble. This is the warning to us at the end of the world that a great time of trouble is coming. Will you be able to stand? You know Christ in such a way that when this great time of trouble comes, you're not weeping for Christ like the women did. You're believing in Christ. Christ did not, was not asking for sympathy as he went to the cross. He was asking for faith because he told them he had to walk this road. He told them he'd have to go down this path. He told them that he'd be uh, uh, killed at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. But he also told them that on the third day he'd rise again. Revelation 6.14 says it like this. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Just like Luke 23 says. Here it is in Revelation 6. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. He, when Jesus turned to the women and he said, listen, one day you're going to cry out to the rocks to fall on us. He was the, he was the lamb that was being slaughtered. 
But when he's when the, when, but when the, the prophecy is fulfilled uh, in the future, when people are running to the rocks and crying, fall on us, he won't be the lamb that he's being slaughtered. He will be the lamb and th that is that is now king and conqueror, and it will be his wrath that they're running from. Verse 17 says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Let me tell you something. If you're not standing with Jesus now, you won't be able to stand against him when he comes again. The time to stand with Jesus is now. Luke 23 and verse 31, one of the most interesting passages in this story of the women who are crying is found in Luke 23 and verse 31. It says, for if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Jesus says to the women, listen, if they'll do this stuff in the green tree, what will they do in the dry? In other words, if this is how the perfect lamb of God, the son of the living God, if this is how he is treated, publicly humiliated, and all of these things happen in a kangaroo court, what will happen to those who when repentance, forgiveness, grace, and mercy was offered to them, they rejected it? If they did this to the innocent, what will happen to the guilty? Ellen White says it like this, Desire of Ages, page 743. From the fall of Jerusalem, the thoughts of Jesus passed to a wider judgment. In the destruction of the impenitent city, he saw a symbol of the final destruction to come upon the world. He said, then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? By the green tree, Jesus represented himself, the innocent redeemer. God suffered his wrath against transgression to fall on his beloved son. Jesus was to be crucified for the sins of men. What suffering then would the sinner bear who continued to sin? All the impatient and unbelieving would know a sorrow and misery that language would fail to express of the multitude that followed the Savior to Calvary, many had attended him with joyful hosannas and the waving of palm branches as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, but not a few who had then shouted his praise because it was popular to do so. Now swelled the cry of crucify him, crucify him. For many of us, the circles we live in right now, it is popular to say you're a Christian, an Adventist, to say you believe in the Bible, the day will come when these things will no longer be popular. To stand for what you believe, uh, in the, especially in the seven-day Sabbath, will not be popular. And I'm telling you that one day this will happen. And 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 the very people that some of us have gone to church with, who have all our lives we thought were true blue, they will turn on us just as these people turned on Christ. So Jesus says, a man's enemies will be they of his own household. Ellen White says, when Christ rode into Jerusalem, the hopes of his disciples had been raised to the highest pitch. They had pressed close about their master, feeling that it was a high honor to be connected with him. Now in his humiliation, they followed him at a distance. They were filled with grief and bowed down with disappointed hopes. How were the words of Jesus verified? All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For I, it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And that text is found in Matthew 26 and verse 31. Let me tell you something, church. 
In many ways, what happened to the disciples that night will happen to the church at end times. The shepherd of today, the word of God will be attacked as it already has been attacked. If you go to an American college or a college in Europe, South Africa, Australia, much of the world, and you say you believe in God, you believe that he created the world, professors and students will, will ridicule you. We live in a time where if you believe in the word of God and you believe what God says about um, morality and moral issues, you'll be ridiculed. If you say you believe in the stories of scripture and you understand them to be history, you'll be ridiculed. And as this ridicule raises and raises, uh, many will begin to give up their beliefs in the Bible as a thus saith the Lord. They will no longer believe in sola scriptura. They will say we must add in science into the Bible so that we can find a way for evolution to fit into the pages of the word of God. And people will begin to deconstruct God's word, to be begin to, to, to beat at the word, to beat at what is to be our shepherd a moral compass in the word of God. That is going to begin to happen, church. And when that happens, there are many people who we go to church with now, and I hope it's not you, but many in, in, in our fold are going to pack up and leave. There's going to be a great shaking that the spirit of prophecy says has already begun. And many who we believe are true blue are going to be shaken out. This last warning that Jesus gave to these women before his crucifixion is a warning to us today that in fact, if they would do this in a green tree, what will they do in the dry if they were, if they're willing now to begin to come against the things of God as God's spirit is removed from the earth? How will they then come against the Christian? And if you're not ready for what is coming, if this pandemic hasn't taught you that you need to be ready for what is coming upon the world. I don't know what God needs to do to make you see he's right about his word. If there were going to be seven last plagues, that means there had to be some plagues before. We are watching one of the early ones. And look how quickly with all of his technology, man was baffled. We don't even have enough masks and gowns. We can't get enough tests. All the technology to go to the moon and people are wearing, nurses are wearing garbage bags to try and protect themselves from this virus. Man has been humbled. Our society is fragile. It's fractured. You now see all that man has built can be brought down in a second. Will you still put your trust in man? I challenge you tonight, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your all. As he goes to the cross, you go to the cross with him and leave your, your problems, leave your past, leave your shame, leave your guilt, leave your sin at the foot of the cross and you walk with Jesus after that. Jesus says it like this, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Church, if, you, if you're only having a superficial relationship with Jesus now, if church is more of a social outing, if you, if you go into church so that you can hear the music bump and you can uh, feel have a feel good and socialize with your friends, let me tell you, there is a time coming when it's not going to be enough that you are weeping for Jesus. You are going to need to be walking with Jesus. You're going to be, have to not be the women on the side feeling bad for Jesus. You're going to have to be like Simon the Cyrenian who is willing to pick up the cross and walk with Jesus. And the Bible lets us know there are hints in the Bible that Simon's sons become Christians. Uh, Rufus and I believe this other son's name is Alexander. They become Christians. And even in Romans, uh, it also seems to point to the idea that his wife becomes a Christian. That in fact, Simon becomes a follower of Christ. He is not there by default 
when Jerusalem is destroyed. Yet the women who are crying for Jesus, like some of us cry every week during praise and worship service, crying for Jesus are not ready when he comes. This is the last great warning. Stop playing with God. Take him seriously. This virus was sent as a warning. Man cannot be trusted. Will you trust the living God? Will you call on him and accept him as your Lord and Savior? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Father, for you are better to us than we are to ourselves. Father God, you turned. Jesus, as he was walking to Calvary, turned and sympathized with the women crying. Lord, tonight there are people crying who need to know that you still sympathize with them. But you also still give the warning. The warning is that this world is not our home. And that there is a return of that same lamb that went to slaughter that day. He will come back as a king, as a conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to receive his own. Lord, I pray that all who hear this would be ready when Jesus returns. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.